Welcome to What If So What, the podcast where we ask what's possible with digital and figure out how to make it real in your business. I'm Jim Hertzfeld. And I'm Kim Chopek. We're part of Proficient's digital strategy team. And today we'll ask what if, so what, and most importantly, now what? There's a great saying about marketing. About half of a company's marketing efforts are effective. The problem is they don't know which half. The implication is not that you should shut down your marketing department. It's just an admission of faith. In the opening of his new book, Converted, Neil Hoyne brings this notion up today when he declares the following. Digital marketing is about keeping the faith. The faith that you can seduce someone to buy more, vote differently, or just love your brand, all in a 250 by 250 pixel box as they're scrolling through websites, purposely trying to avoid the message that you're sending. It's about timing, extraordinary scale, and hoping that customers willing to pay full price don't find the 15% off coupon code first. It's also a promise. Help the customer reach their ambitions while you get yours, their money. We're on the show today with Google's chief measurement strategist and author of the book, Converted, Neil Hoyne. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Hey, Neil, I want to just dive right into it. First of all, tell, tell us a little bit more about your role and your mission at Google. My underlying question is why measurement? What happened to good old-fashioned analytics? I think, you know, the, both of those are used interchangeably. I'll tell you a little bit about what I do. And you can just almost say for a point that it's like, I should be the chief data strategist, although that may be too generic for some marketers even. The question really is to say, we all know data has potential. It has value. We talk about this all the time. Data is the new oil, but companies repeatedly then are forced to confront the question to say, well, where exactly is that value coming from? And there have been far too many conversations that I've had with companies where they have plans. They say, look, we've captured so much data. We know so much about our customers. And then you ask that question, you say, well, where is the strategy to use that data? And where's the money going to come from? And generally they just offload and they say, well, we'll, we'll hire a data scientist and they'll mine the data for us. And so what I do in my role is really I work with some of our largest advertisers. Those are the ones that are defined by spending a little bit more than $5 million U.S. with us a year. And to really work with them on that question to say, where does value come from in data? And when you look across so many companies, you look at so many different verticals, so many different countries, you start to see best and worst practices emerge. You start to see some companies that have figured it out to say, well, okay, this is what they're doing when they see this data. And then you bring it to other companies, that exact same piece of data, and they use it in a different way where some see success, some see failure. And you start to see patterns emerge and say, this is what great companies do. This is what poor companies do. And it's more than just the technology they use or even who their customers are. It's just fundamentally how they run their business, how they build these strategies. And so my goal really is to kind of distill it down to figure out that answer. How do you grow using data? One of the things that I, I noticed in, in the book is this idea. I kind of interpret it as signal to noise ratio. In my young career as an engineer, I got really involved in design of experiments and what was called Taguchi design of experiments, sort of Six Sigma-esque stuff. It's really fascinating to me. My problems were a little more boring. I was working on washing machines. I think that's when you kind of cut into that in the book, it was really focusing on what matters. I think a lot of people get hung up on having all the data you mentioned. So if it's a new oil, we must need more of it. Is there a chicken or egg problem? Is it finding the data and getting the data and then figuring out what matters? Or do you work with what matters, or what hypothesize what matters and get started? You know, I think if we were starting from scratch, that would be an issue. How do you find insights if you don't know what to collect? Um, that type of problem. But thankfully, there's just enough data that companies have and enough insights as to what's driving behavior that it's less of a question. 
But it's really now we're stuck with another problem, which is changing historical behaviors. Large companies have built entire teams, data science teams, around just capturing and mining more of this data. They haven't invested enough in actually applying this data to drive value to their business. So generally, when I look at companies and they present these elaborate plans for how they're going to digitally transform their customer data, you almost have to walk them back a step to say, no, you have enough as is. It's just you have to change the objectives that you're tracking. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of expectation setting, and it feels like, I think a lot of people think of data as a technology problem first. If we throw enough of t- technology at it, we'll figure out what it means. We'll figure out how to use it. There's an entire industry built around that. And this isn't necessarily to throw anything negative at that industry, but when you sell a product, that's something tangible that you can put in front of people. It's, and I, I joke around oftentimes, it's very much like when you get like gym memberships in home gyms, it's like, you have this problem, you want, you, you want to look better. Oh, great. We have a product that we can sell you. And that product may be fantastic. It could help you. But I'll bet you two things. One is it's going to be expensive. And two is you can probably see some benefit with what you already have. You don't need to get an Olympic coach you know, to, to help you lose weight. Why don't you just go outside and take a walk? If you haven't been outside, you haven't taken a run in a while, let's start there because you can do that today. Whereas it may take you, as it does with enterprise software, months to scope it out, to buy it. It's just, again, that's where the expectations are set. When people look at companies and they listen to these earnings calls, it's all this technology we're buying. And so people listen and rightfully say, aha, that's how they're successful. And that technology may play a small part, but 95% of it is leadership saying, no, we're actually going to use these resources in the right direction. These leaders, these CMOs are being the bright coaches for those businesses more than any technology they're buying. So Neil, you mentioned data scientists. It's a role we hear a lot. It seems like there's a lot of mystery around it. There's a lot of hope around what the data scientists could do or a team of data scientists. What is a good data scientist? Is it a mythical role or have you seen data scientists work this problem after the technology is invested in, after all the data is collected? Is that that where the hope lies? You know, I've seen it and I keep hoping for it. Uh, You would think that for any job function, the goal is to create value. Generally, the way that I observe it, and this is, again, in best-in-class companies, is that you see the data science being carved out in two traditional functions. One is you have, and this can be called different roles, but they exist where they're really just you have people capturing the data. Uh, These are people that are interacting with your cloud platforms, your APIs, your CRM systems, just to suck in and organize as much data as you can. And then you have these traditional data scientists who are next to them saying, I'm going to try extracting some type of insights from this. They're building the dashboards, the reporting. And they're really using, you know, this is where the R and the SQL and the Python come in to try to make sense of this, to say, we're not looking at all this raw data. This is what our our sales were. These are what our metrics ended up being. But when you talk about that idea of data science as being almost, you know, mythical, like what what do they do? They, They have some secret science. This is because a lot of companies lack this third type of role, which is somebody that translates what the data scientists are doing to actual functional roles. And this sounds obvious, like, well, wouldn't companies do this? And sometimes you get the data scientists that say, no, I will build dashboards that can explain things, but it rarely happens because the reality is that data scientists are not in the field working with frontline sales, or are they working directly with the finance teams, or are they working with the product teams? They're generally seen as a utility function where if both sides know exactly the question, they know what the dashboard should look like, they work together. But there's no one saying, hey, out of this insight, out of what we derived in this dashboard, how do you do anything with it? Or how do you interpret it? Or how is it applied to our business? Or somebody sitting with the sales teams to say, you know, we don't necessarily need you to explain the problem because you don't know the data sets, what we're capturing, what we can do. 
but I understand your business well enough to know this particular type of insight could be valuable to the work that you're doing. And so oftentimes we put the responsibility on, say, the salespeople or the data scientists to do it. Best-in-class organizations will hire people who have almost comfort working across both functions. So the people that are building the data, but they're not going to be the best programmers. They're not going to be the best analysts, but they also understand how to look across those functions and say, these are the types of questions, the types of insights that they need in order to drive their business forward. So you really see those three sides. You see the people that are collecting the data, people that are organizing and analyzing the data, and then that often missed function of people that are telling that story to the rest of the organization. We see that a lot, or at least uh, in really successful organizations as well. We'll call them pie-shaped resources. used to be T, but Greek letter pi that have kind of two strengths. And I like the idea of sort of thinking of a data scientist as a It's a data person thinking like a business person who's thinking like a data person, or it's a business person thinking like a data person who can think like a business person. But it's um, a skill set that needs to be cultivated because I don't think it's just throwing people at it, at the problem. Another another trend we're seeing, maybe you could kind of make sense of it, is we'll run into organizations that have an analytics team, but we find that they come in two categories, your sort of quote unquote digital and web analytics people. And then your traditional BI people that are kind of in the operations side of the business. And we're seeing them coming together more and more. Would that you consider that to be a, a best practice, the recognition that there's sort of a 360 degree view of everything? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As long as it doesn't stop with data science. There's all too often you see these companies saying, well, we have our web business, but it's completely separate from our traditional business. You see this with e-commerce all the time. No, this is our brick and mortar store. And then we have our web sales team. And the thing is that that customers, especially during the pandemic, are using these channels interchangeably. What's most convenient for them? And they need to be connected. Otherwise, from a customer side, you experience it as one brand. When you see marketing, you're not saying, oh, well, this is for this retailer's online store doesn't necessarily apply to their physical location. And so those lines are blurring. The issue historically as to where this came from was that there were companies, when we go back about 10 years ago, when I started really working at Google, that didn't believe in the long-term potential of e-commerce. This wasn't going to be something that was a fundamental part of their business. This was going to be, hey, we, we want to explore this and we'll see what happens and we'll kind of send these people off over here and they'll have access to our warehouse and maybe stuff will work and maybe it won't. We're well past that point, especially with the growth in e-commerce adoption we've seen during COVID. These systems, these people have to be integrated across data science, across strategy, across operations. Yeah, we like to say that Customers want to choose or interact with the the brand, not the channel, not make that choice. Yeah, we're seeing that certainly a lot of that in, in the B2B world as well. Yeah, there's still a lot of resistance, but there's um, sort of thawing of the, maybe it's just the old guard, maybe it's the pandemic. Neil, I know you work with a lot of different brands and there's a meme that I want to start with that I love that good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> and um I think you've got some great stories. Like, what are some things you're seeing in companies that are doing it well? Maybe have learned some tough lessons. Like, what are some of the war stories you're you're encountering that you share with others? You know, when it when it comes to the idea of failure, it's interesting. I've yet to meet an executive that doesn't encourage what I would consider to be idealistic failure. Like, if you ask him, it's like, do you encourage failure? Does your organization failure and, and fail? And they look at it as almost something that they need to champion. No, we're okay taking risks and we're okay doing big things. And we know they're not, that's like the right answer. That's what you give. Like if you're an MBA student and your marketing professor asks you like, yes, companies should take risks, but nobody goes to their desk and says in the morning, all right, I'm going to fail. Like this is, so what are we going to do today? We're going <laughs> to, we're going to lose money and our boss is going to be okay. We eliminate that risk because failing does not get you promoted. 
<laughs> failing, if anything else, reduces uh, your career trajectory a little bit. And so the, it's a problem. But in terms of the question, what do we see? What do we see the companies actually do? When I look at it from a leadership component, you want to say, well, what's the difference between, let's just call it a good and bad company. The good companies are ones that make failures public. And so I'll use an example here from Google. Uh, something that's a big part of Google culture are just the ability to do post-mortems. So if a server, uh, if Google Cloud goes down, if YouTube goes down, there's going to be a comprehensive post-mortem on it. It will generally be circulated within the company and it will call out every step, every failure that happened along the way. Every analyst that saw a number that ignored it, every person that when they were trying to resolve the incident either responded correctly or not. But what's fascinating is at the end of it, I have yet to see one in nearly a decade at the company that says this person was to blame. This person fell short of their responsibilities. There's never been those cases of gross negligence, which speaks to hiring, but instead says, here were the different ways that the organization fell short, that our assumptions, our expectations as a company fell short. When you promote and you celebrate those types of examples, it's saying to the company, it's saying, not only are these things okay, this is what we're focusing on when things fall short, it's, but it's also prioritizing learnings. If you get to the end of a post-mortem, it says, well, YouTube went down, we lost you know, millions of dollars and we learned nothing, then that's what I consider to be a true failure because nothing yeah. came out of it. Yeah. But if you come through and you say, look, these were processes that we should have improved and we will improve. And the responsibility is to say, look, we expect things to fail as a company. That's part of doing business. But now the responsibility comes in where every stakeholder that's involved, how do you improve those functions so that we learn and we become a stronger business? Now we will hold people accountable for it. You did your job. Now we told you how to improve. And what that's telling other people in the company is not necessarily that they should fail, but if those failures do occur, this is a time really for that next phase, which is to say, what did we learn so that way we can improve it? And when you make those public, it's saying from the very top all the way down, these types of things are okay, not necessarily things we need to avoid. That sounds like a great function of sort of the most ideal engineering-driven culture. I think that's a great advantage that, that Google has. I, um, For some reason, I don't want to go uh, too dark here. But the post-mortem analysis of things like the Challenger explosion or Chernobyl, I mean, absolute disasters, right? And you look into those, I feel like some of those were caused by an unhealthy approach to risk-taking. You know, I think we've come a long way. Obviously, that was decades ago. That's great advice, I think, not just for engineering teams or an entire organization, but hopefully for some of the cross-functional teams that I think inhibit a lot of that sort of transparency in some of the organizations we work with. So I think that's fantastic advice. And, and I will I will mention it to you on this when you're comparing like the, the challenger disaster to marketing we get we get people to click on pictures it, it is what it is is that with marketing what I'm surprised about is that people often gravitate towards and I apologize because I did the same I gave you a big bold example of a failure but oftentimes companies even when they run an ad campaign I'm surprised that they run an ad campaign that campaign doesn't perform to their expectations and they they don't go through almost that post mortem review they just they kind of look at someone and say, ah, that ad network was to blame. That channel just doesn't work for us. Or we, we shouldn't have done this promotion. This creative didn't work for us. I'm surprised at how few companies actually go through to say, it didn't work for us, but let's not blame one function or the other right away and just say, it just inherently doesn't work for our business. I don't care what channel or medium it is, but to go through and to say, well, why is it not working? What did we do wrong? I, I saw this. It was, uh, it was not Google. It was one of those. Uh, it was another social media channel where a company went through and they just declared this social media channel does not work for us. People do not convert. And they ignored the fact that it was their first time using that channel, that they never built a creative. They never engaged an audience with it. They simply said the CPAs were too high. 
And now they set it through the entire organization where nobody wants to go back to that channel. They have closed off that avenue of growth because of one experience that they simply labeled, this channel doesn't work. That's how you encourage at risk to say, we spent money here. It didn't work out, but this is what we learned about that channel that can improve our likelihood of success going forward. Sounds like maybe it's some motivation for writing the book. You're kind of describing problems that have been been around for a while. You've been noodling on this for 10 years, much longer, 10 years at Google, much longer. What sort of motivated you to uh, to write the book? Was it the scenario you just described? It was partially in there. In fact, the original version of the book, I'll tell you, was about company failures. And I work with a brilliant professor over at, at Harvard Business School. Um, and it, he was just telling me one time, he said he was a little bit frustrated that a lot of the companies and the stories coming out of Silicon Valley always have this survivorship bias. It's you see these entrepreneurs that say, this is what I did. I worked out of a van and it worked out. And then you see the next generation <laughs> of entrepreneurs saying, well, it worked for them. I can do it. And he's like, there are no lessons. There are no postmortems really from the companies that fail. They don't get book deals. Yeah. And so originally it started out with just organizing a collection of stories to say, I've worked with a lot of companies and I aggregated some of the lessons and anonymized some of them as to not point out or shame any of the guilty because I know there's a lot to their stories that I'd have to tell. But I started putting it together and it started off almost as a collection of essays to say, here's what we learned. And really what I found out was that as I was going through there, one was I needed to be a little bit more positive because otherwise you get done with it and you start looking for, for a bottle of scotch in my case. You're like, wow, these are some miserable stories. But what I realized was that there were a lot of learnings and there was a lot of optimism to it so that as the story developed, it was not necessarily enough to show these failures, but also to the readers to say, what did we learn? Where are the opportunities? If you want to avoid doing this for your business, what happens? As it turns out, what the common thread through all of these, what did we learn from all of these companies? What could we have done better with data from all these failures, all these postmortems was really more of a leadership question than a data question. It was not about the systems they were using. It was not about the people they hired. It was to say, did the executives, did the people in that organization actually understand the world in which they were playing, how they were interacting with their customers? And that kind of became the success story that came out of it was to say, these companies failed, but if they could only have seen a bigger picture, imagine what they could have done. So I effectively wrote that postmortem almost for marketers, which is to say, let's look at all these companies, all these, these crazy failures that have happened. And then let's look at what we learned from it that can be applied to your business going forward. So that way you don't have to make the same mistakes. I think it's great confidence for a lot of organizations that are just, just getting started or, you know, they've just figured out analytics and now they're trying to figure out or measurement and they're just trying to figure out experimentation. We do hear that quite a bit as well. And what I'm picking up from a lot of our, our customers is, you know, that is a way forward for them to understand. They know they're going to fail, right? They know that not every, not everything's going to hit. How do we learn from it going forward? And I think, uh, not just from testing and experimentation, but then how can the machine do a better job? Which leads me to my kind of last question, which is around innovation. We hear a lot about machine learning and, and AI and what's the right application and how do I get started with that? You know, but I'm picking up, you know, a lot of, hey, wait a, wait a minute, let's get back to basics and work with what you have. But when it comes to innovation, another white space word for the show, right? So we use it carefully, but where does data and where does measurement fit into sort of the innovation spectrum at this point? I'd say the, the conversation is, is fairly consistent. And let's take something like machine learning and let's tie it back to something we were bringing up early on. I think a lot of companies are distracted because they look at machine learning as being a almost a software-driven solution to say, we need to use all this infrastructure. Again, more data, like the gym membership phenomenon. We need to buy all this stuff and hire you know data scientists that get paid seven figures a year. And the answer is no, take a, take a step back. 
if we're going to be honest with a lot of companies, saying you're using machine learning or AI is the easiest way to get funding now in the Valley. It's like, I know some companies like, and we're using artificial intelligence to predict it. No, you're not. You're using Excel. You built a regression. <laughs> but I appreciate it because that means you're, you're good marketers. You know how to speak to the audience, what they want to hear. The problem is that companies look at it and they say, well, this is what we need to be using to stay ahead of everybody. But they don't know where the progress comes from. And so when I look at the role of all these tools and techniques, I say that they're great, but they're nothing unless you can actually apply it. And one of the hardest lessons for companies to learn when it comes to their data is one is that they likely have a lot of great insights already with their people, with their analysts that are just having difficulty being bubbled up in their organization. And the second thing is that the target for improvement should never be a 6, 12, 18-month project. If you want to have those visions, by all means, have them. But tell me what you're going to do this week. And that's an interesting question to confront executives with because it seems almost trended. Like, what, what do you mean, what am I doing this week? What tests are you running? How are you improving your business? And oftentimes you just hear them say, well, I'm sure somebody in the organization is doing it because I'm focused on the big picture. And you look at it and you realize that everyone in the organization is really just trying to make that vision happen long-term, but they're not empowered to actually make those changes. And so really the challenge is with this data that you have, how do you get people to actually use it? You mentioned experimentations. I love talking to CMOs and asking them how difficult it is to run an experiment in their company because nearly... 100% of the time, you say, it's trivial. And for them, it is because if a CEO, CMO bangs their fist on the table and says, I want to test this, that will get done that day. But then you talk to the analysts, you talk to people that are seeing these opportunities on the ground that are working with the data every day. And you say, what's the process if you get an insight and you want to run a test? That's at the point where you need to buy them a beer because they'll go through the list. Well, first I need to convince my manager it's important. Then they need to convince their director and then their VP and then someone needs to give us budget. And then there's going to be a sprint somewhere that it seems it needs to be integrated. And we need to talk to UI and legal. And even if you distill it down, I asked one retailer one time, I said, look, say I want to add, you have a white background on your webpage. Say I want to add a period at the bottom of your page and it's in white, something that will have no impact, no legalities, no change in conversion rate. It's just a change. How long does it take? Say it would take months. Wow. And so we just don't do it. And so if we find that insight, this is what happens. You, have, you hire some really great people. You give them all the data that they need. They're sitting at their desk and saying, hey, here's something really fascinating, but it's not worth it because I know the process that I'm going to have to go through. And here's, here's where this all ties together. God help them if they're wrong. Because if they go through and run that gauntlet, getting through every team, we got through legal, we got through UX, we got through our engineering team, I got my boss and, and their boss and their boss on board and then the test fails, they're not going to listen to that person for new ideas. And so they only pick the sure things. They only pick the big things. And the company just loses their way. And they say, what are we doing with all this data? And they've just never empowered the right people to take the right actions. That's great advice. And it just, it reminds me of, of so many things around velocity, speed to value, other buzzwords out there, but it's really about working with what you have today Try and take action on it before it expires, like the inside expires, which is a great story. I can see that happening six to seven months that, you know, that we've churned five times on the idea. So I think that's great direction. Neil, we could cover a lot of ground. Great to hear your perspective. I think really kind of grounds what we're, what we're seeing in and what we've read in the book. We know it's launching, I think at the time that this podcast is going live. So good luck with that. And, um, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the insights. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. And the measurement. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. All right. Take care.
Now it's time for our namesake segment. What if, so what? And most importantly, now what? Kim, what were your big takeaways from the interview with Neil today? Hey, Jim, I really enjoyed hearing from Neil. I really enjoyed reading the book and then hearing him kind of talk through it. It's sort of like his voice come to life. (laughs) Very much. I Not struggled, but I, I thought a lot about the takeaways here, because we've talked so much about strategy on this podcast, what it is, what it's not, moving from strategy to execution, the difference. But the biggest point that stood out to me that Neil emphasized was you have the strategy. Do you have the budget to do something with that data? And I thought that that was really interesting because it really kind of gives a very specific example of how we talk about moving from strategy to execution. And funding is such a big part of it that I don't think we've explored a lot. So I really liked the finer point that he put on that, like stop with the strategy. You have the data, do something with it. But Mm -hmm. do you have that funding? And two other provocations I thought were really interesting. How do you grow using data? So when we talk about mission and vision of a strategy, you know, is data part of that mission and vision related to growth? And then um, my favorite, which we've talked about several times, good companies make failure public. Neil talked about having good postmortems and not being afraid to experiment, but then really, really just dissect that failure in the case that it fails and understand why. I, I don't think companies do that enough. And I really liked some of the examples he gave in the book, some of the stories he told around just making failure public. But what'd you think? I love putting failure and risk taking and experimentation together. You know, I just think that that was a great point. I'm glad we didn't gloss over that. I just think it's sort of a hidden part of many companies. And I was, I also realized when he said public, we didn't mean let's put it on our webpage today. I think you know, at least, at least, at least in, in, in the organization, at least make it public to the organization, you know, just being honest with ourselves. You're right. But by the way, his book is uh, very much like his conversational tone. So a great read, easy to read, easy to follow. Yeah. I thought really poignant. You know, there were some. I don't want to call them old ideas or cliches, but some things that I think you really put in perspective. The one that stuck out for me was, you know, data is the new oil. And I think when I first heard that phrase, which was, I don't know when, but it's been, it's been a while. My first thought was that's sort of the lubricant, right? You put oil in the machine to keep it going, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have an engine, you have gears are turning and the engine is doing something, but you know, it's not going to run without oil to keep it going, you know, and. But I think there's another perspective on this. And I was thinking in, in the context of, hey, we already, we already have all this data. Like if I, I got to get all the mm-hmm. data, like now, now what? And I'm, I'm going back to maybe a different version of oil. Like there was a time where oil, petroleum in particular, like had no value until we invented the engine, the internal combustion engine, and we could turn oil into gasoline and revolutionize the way, you know, people get around and travel. It's hard to argue that that wasn't revolutionary. So it's really akin to the oil being monetized, you know, and I think, how do you monetize the data, you know, not necessarily packaging it and selling it, but how do you, what's the right application? So I thought that was sort of putting things in perspective, you know, oil is something that sort of lubricates the machine and keeps it going. You know, oils is something that you distill and you refine, you know, so that you can use it in a much more valuable way. And I thought that really sort of saturated a lot of his, of his comments, you know, and Particularly around data science, I think is another point that he, that he touched on. Cause I hear this a lot. And it's the reason I wanted to ask the question. I think he put it in perspective. There's people who get the data. There's people who make sense of the data. You know, there's people who mine, you know, and drill for oil. There are people who make sense of the data. Like 
They get it on ships. They sell it to refiners, but they still make plastics out of petroleum, right? So they make sense of it. What can I do with it? And then what do you do with that? And I think that was really the key part. You know, who translates it to the people who can really take action on it? And so, you know, I, yeah, I got a whole new perspective on the- uh, That's a lot of oil analogies on there. The, I know. I know. Yeah. It's, I know. It's, it's, it was just flowing- <laughs> you know, like a like a pipeline of ideas. So, but <clears throat> no, that really that really did resonate with me. Like it hit me during the interview, and I'm like, yeah, this is a totally different way of looking at it. Another thing that resonated a little bit in, in his interview, but certainly in the book, was you know, and I think we'll focus on this is how do you know which which is the most valuable? And I was thinking about some data experiences that I I've had in some of our projects. Yeah, I know we had a retailer that. Was trying to replace their their merchandise and their and their buyers with analytics. You know, how can we replace these people with decades of experience and relationships and intuition? And they tried it and it didn't work. And I remember working on a sales forecasting system, which was extremely sophisticated, PhDs everywhere, data everywhere, and then at the end of the day, the regional sales managers just put their own number in. That was a key feature. You know, like, mm-hmm. well, gosh, why did we do all this? You know, there's so many things behind that. Like, how do you? All that effort, but how do you focus on what really matters? You know, and, and I kind of referenced an experience I had in experimentation where we focused on what was called signal to noise ratio. And so that really resonated with me. And again, there's an analog for a lot of things, but I think this idea of really, really smart decision making and just kind of being practical down to earth and basic, you know, really kind of came through, I think, again, in the book and in, in the interview. But what does it all mean, Kim? What's the what if today? Yeah, you know, again, I struggled a little bit with this and and maybe you're right. Neil just put a different perspective on how I previously thought about data and it occurred to me that maybe all these data analytics folks and data scientists and data engineering teams, you know, in their pursuit of data, they've lost track of of the bigger picture. Going off your oil analogy, you always want more oil, you always want more data, but do you? You know, we've talked a lot about data across our episodes, the growth of data availability, the promise of having the right data, how businesses can prioritize and leverage their data better. So it feels like we've covered a lot of the broad aspirational what ifs when it comes to data. But I think what we heard from Neil is a little bit different as far as where to start. You have enough data. Now do something with it. You know, all your data teams in pursuit of oil won't know when to stop (laughs) unless you tell them we have enough. Now let's do something with it. Let's, let's start the refinement process. So my, what if is, you know, let's cut to that scenario. What if you already have your data silos aligned? What if you have already empowered the right people to take action? What benefits will the business see? Is that enough to drive growth with data? By the way, when you ha- how do you know you have too much oil when it's on the beach? I just I'm just going to keep this metaphor. It's just going to keep going. It's just going to keep going. The so what to me is going to be very meta. I think the so what is so what. Now let me yeah. defend that for a second. Okay. I'm not trying to be cheeky here. So I think about a lot of data programs where let's collect everything, or I have a new analytics package in it, and look what I have. You know, mm-hmm. or I'm designing an experiment. Let's change the page layout. Let's change the language. Let's change the fields and the form. And then I'm looking at this data, I'm looking at the variables and that can get really expensive mm-hmm. pointed out, right? I think it was a great story he told, you know, where it's, you know, just to make one change was taking months. So I think the so what is really figuring out what, what matters, you know, and 
So again, I've seen a lot of analytics. I've seen a lot of numbers about clicks and downloads and impressions. And we got to really figure out what matters the most. Now, I think there's maybe a sophisticated level of experimentation that is going to figure out the right signal to noise ratio. What, which one is making the difference? And I think, you know, experiments sometimes are more about finding which values, which data matters, right? Not, not, so there's value in certainly in, in testing. If I'm testing red versus green, then I'm going to find out which one's going to convert better. But what I'm really trying to figure out, is it the color or is it the number of fields or is it something else? Right. I just felt that was really critical because we get, again, like a lot of things that we talk about here, people get enamored by the technology. They get enamored by the dashboard. They get enamored by like how many fields I'm or columns I have in my data export. We really have to be vigilant about what matters because that has a downstream effect on, you know, not just the performance, but the main, you know, the cost to maintain that data, the cost to continue to derive it. How many data scientists do I need? How many data scientists does it take to change a light bulb? There's a joke somewhere. Well, how does that get started, Kim? What's the now what? I like the, the meta-ness. <laughs> uh, it really is this gets back to that. So what, when do you know you have enough data? I think Neil in his book, he recommends three points, how to start simple. And he talks about get moving and it's kind of that same like MVP, pick a single use case, you know, start small, start simple, just start somewhere. Right. Start with people, meaning follow the money, the money really coming from what's the data path to that money. That's a great way to figure out the prioritized use cases. And then his final point is know everyone's name, meaning specifically the customer. So not only get moving and follow the money, figure out who we're talking about. You know, how do you recognize that it is Jim Hertzfeld in this channel, in this channel, in this channel? Do you have an ID for Jim across those channels? Do you know it's Jim? If you don't, you know, there's another good place to start. So I, I like his advice on where to start. I think the other point that he made was really at the end of the day, as a leader, ask what you're going to do this week to get an actionable insight. And that actually might trigger getting people moving and starting to follow the money trail and figuring out how much you really know about your target customers. And it could be in terms of what are you going to do this week? It could be a data thing. You know, are we capturing the right data? Do we have too many IDs for the same person? But it also could be taking a step back and Coming back to one of those more important points that he made, making sure you've empowered the right people to take action with what I'm using air quotes here is failure protection. And what I do like in the book that he brings up, and I'm going to quote him here, don't forget something for the CFO. (laughs) And that brings it back to the money. I think to be able to build the bigger business case and bringing it back to our earlier conversation around getting funding. You have to be able to show the business case. And, and you can really do that with a very small use case. We've seen that in our own practice be very successful. So I, I would recommend that as a now what, and certainly reading Neil's book to get a little bit more of those stories. Yeah, that was, that was great, Kim. A lot of basics. Again, you know, I keep hearing these themes. I love these interviews. I love these perspectives. And I'm really catching on a lot of common themes, but the this week thing really resonates with me there. Yeah. Yeah. That's just great advice for every, anyone, you know, and I think, you know, he also talks about the gym membership, right? Well, are you still going? You know, it can't be overwhelming. Right. Sort of the modest permission to, to fail and permission to get started. I think it's great. 
Hey, Kim, great analysis as always. And I just want to thank Neil again for joining us. Easy read, great interview, easy guy to talk to. Look forward to talking to him again someday. Kim, we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, Jim. Great talking as always. Awesome. Now, thanks to everyone else for listening today. Until next time, keep asking what if, so what, and most importantly, now what? You've been listening to What If, So What, the digital strategy podcast from Proficient with Jim Hertzfeld and Kim Chopek. We want to thank our Proficient colleague, J.D. Norman, for our music today. Subscribe to the podcast and don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Proficient.com. Thanks for listening.